Good evening, Sangha, or good afternoon. Is it, uh, can everyone hear me? So I actually have two separate Dharma talks in front of me. (laughs) Maybe I'll ask Chitta. (laughs) I had this experience with one of my... um, teachers that I love sitting with that some of us in the room know, Ajahn Suchito. And he said, Bonnie, you need to give more authority to Chitta. So, Chitta, which talk should I give? <laughs> so I'm going to talk about happiness. Oh, it answered already. <laughs> I'm going to talk about inclining the mind towards happiness and also about the paramis. Uh, The paramis are the uh, really positive, beautiful qualities of mind. And I think the two probably are very much related to each other, those two topics. And um, so, you know, this practice, one way to think of it, and I'm sure there's many ways to think of it, but one way to think, of this practice that we're doing is that it's a practice of cultivation, cultivating really positive qualities, and also of purification, of purification and cultivation. In fact, you know, um, some of you know that there's a pretty well laid out map about how you get enlightened. It's called the um, progress of purification, isn't it? Yeah, the Vasudhimaga the progress of insight, the progress of purification. So we know that purification is really central to the practice that we're doing. And it's also about cultivation and uh, cultivating the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, um, very beautiful qualities of mind that are really what an enlightened mind looks like. I think the process is to try to uh, incline the mind towards awakening by, um, you know, they say that enlightenment is grace, right? It's an event of grace. But we practice to make grace more, you know, to increase the probability of that happening. So we're trying to train our mind in a way that reflects what an enlightened mind looks like. And that's, and that's the, uh, the, uh, the place where there's no second arrow, right? I mean, even the Buddha had backaches and people trying to kill him and his relatives were mean to him, but he didn't have that second arrow of just having a lot of involvement with that and having it create even more suffering for him. You know, he was able to just let that go in a profound way. I mean, I don't even want to try to characterize what that was, but it was not what I think all of us in here are, how we are uh, grappling with the first arrow, which is just the events of being born a human. So this is a nice little poem by Wei Wu Wei. Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and of everything you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. 
And then maybe going in the other direction, this is what Henry Schunkman says. Complete transformation. If spirituality is only about self-transcendence, about seeing through the story of me that we habitually inhabit, then it runs the risk of cutting us loose from that story so that we no longer take care of the human wounds of self and other. No matter how imaginary this self proves proves to be, we return to its world. If spiritual or transcendent insight doesn't lead to healing and transformation in our actual daily lives, it is clearly incomplete. Some of you, and I'm sure many of us, have heard of the uh, term spiritual bypass, right? Where there might be ways that we need to heal that maybe a good psychotherapist or a good body worker or, you know, other forms of healing that would be available to us could be very helpful. A good chiropractor, for Christ. I would, could use one of those. And um, I was so heartened to hear, you know, this one teacher, Ajahn Suchito, talk about the monks going out and getting into group psychotherapy and going to Qigong classes and... You know, they were looking in uh, in the newspaper in England for all of the new age, you know, approaches to wellness because they were participating in all of it. And I thought, wow, if the monks are doing that, maybe I should look around. And it's not to say that this isn't um, incredibly profound awakening process. Of course it is. But I think, you know, self-compassion and self preservation tells us that there are other ways that we can support ourselves as well. Actually, I I read this quote today that I just love so much, and I'm going to say it because I didn't uh, write it down. It's actually a quote in the Angutra Nikaya, and it just slapped me across the face. (laughs) It said, there are two kinds of fools in this world. The first fool is the person who takes upon him burdens takes upon them burdens that they don't need to. And the second fool is the person who doesn't take up burdens that they're supposed to do. Don't you love that? And that's in the suttas. I need to stop taking on burdens that aren't my burdens. So that's one way to incline the mind towards happiness, I think. So according to, um, and I'm going till 4.15 today, right? Maybe 4.12, because we have dinner. Oh, 5.15 now, that's 5.15. (laughs) Okay, get it right, Bonnie. So science says that there's three, the three biggest forces of how happy any individual person is, there's three things that are part of that equation. The first is genetics. That's interesting that some of us have more genetic material for ease of 
well-being or peace or happiness in others. And then the second is big life events like marriage or getting your graduations or um, selling a company or something. And then the third has to do with the choices that we make in our lives, like faith uh, and family and community. You know, the, the um, choices we make about who we spend our time with and, you know, what we do for a living and what, uh, you know, what counts as meaning in our own life. And the science says that it's interesting that of all of these, you know, we often look at big life events for some measure of happiness where we're always kind of leaning forward towards that. I've heard it from many of you in the groups that we're leaning forward towards a big life event. And uh, according to the science, it says that the big life events are actually the least long-term sources of happiness. And any of those things will only give us concrete, measurable happiness for about six months. Isn't that interesting? Six months. (laughs) So, I'm engaged and I'm going to get married, but... (laughs) (laughs) Could I ever be happy for six months? You know? So um, another interesting way to think about happiness is that there's a very big difference between a Western, maybe a Eurocentric way of thinking about happiness and the Buddhist way of thinking about happiness. And of course, you know, um, I have this one uh, dear friend, I work with a lot actually, Deborah, his horse is thunder. She's the uh, director of... uh, behavioral health for the American Indian Higher Education Consortium. And her husband, Ron, um, has this saying that he says all the time, and she says it too to me, and it's like a, you know, they're both from, uh, actually live on the Standing Rock Reservation. Um, And uh, he was tribal chairman of Standing Rock, actually, a couple years ago. And his big saying is, all generalizations are a lie. I love that. I mean, that's a very Buddhist thing too, I think. That, you know, things are changing all the time. And we try to make generalizations about this and that, but at some point they're a lie. I think that is... And when I talk about these Western ways of holding happiness, they're generalizations. So (laughs) I preface saying that by saying that these are, of course, not always true, but... So uh, this is actually in an article written by Matthew Ricard. Many of us probably know him. He's a really wonderful, um, I think he was a biologist or something, and then he became a Tibetan monk. He has a wonderful website. But anyway, he says that the Western uh, happiness is about self-enhancement. And actually... um, Uh, Marlon was even just saying that, that sometimes when we're sitting and we're applying mindfulness, it's almost like we're trying to improve ourselves by some standard, right? 
some standard of this is what a good uh, a good person looks like, and uh, that's probably tied up with a lot of social norms and ideas and beliefs too. So to make sure that we're not, you know, forcing ourselves into a box of what goodness is, or even to pose the questions of that, I thought that was really insightful. You know, we don't want to use mindfulness as a normalizing technology. Right. We've got to be careful. So looking at it as self-enhancement, that happiness is about self-enhancement and about pleasure, about pleasant Vedana, or about a sense of satisfaction or feeling that the external world can give us a sense of satisfaction. And this Western sense of happiness and again, all generalizations are a lie, has this irrelevance of spiritual life or a thought that, you know, spirituality isn't really a part of that. And this idea that the, you know, and a really important part of our well-being is avoiding suffering. How can we avoid suffering? And it's about mastery. So it'd be interesting to think, or not to think, but to reflect when we're sitting in some of the uh, struggles that we can have in our practice, if some of those ideas aren't, pl- uh, aren't present for us, that that's what we're looking for, that sense of happiness. And then uh, Matthew Ricard says, from a Buddhist perspective, happiness is some, are things that are a little bit different. Um, and probably in disagreement with (laughs) Henry Shankman, it's about self-transcendence, about transcending something beyond this idea of ego clinging and these ideas of self based on ego gratification and, you know, building up our ego. Another... um, dimension of Buddhist happiness is human flourishing. What does flourishing look like? Awakening. You know, what does awakening look like? And maybe a sense of contentment versus satisfaction. A contentment that's not necessarily based on having something external happen. A Buddhist sense of uh, well-being and happiness is uh, spiritual life and spiritual training is very, very relevant to an under a Buddhist understanding of uh, happiness and well-being. And interestingly enough, and in direct opposition to maybe uh, how we might understand a Western view, is a Buddhist view actually really values suffering. I mean, when we're opening to our suffering, that's what it's about. And it's about using that to, um, you know, opening to our own suffering in order to open to humanity as an element of our interconnectedness. Because it's pretty obvious that there's so much suffering everywhere. And then harmony, 
rather than mastery, but rather harmony. So in a way our practice helps us reorient towards what's valuable or where well-being can be, can be. Away from, you know, life events, big life events, and more towards, you know, internal uh, cultivation of positive qualities. There's an, another um, primary teaching about the causes of suffering in life and just how they're changing all the time. Um, actually, it's the causes of uh, conditioned, externally conditioned causes of um, suffering and of pleasure. And that's the teaching on the eight worldly vicissitudes, the vicissitudes of life. And we can see them probably every day if we had a checklist of the vicissitudes, we could probably, you know, see all eight of them in any given day. Those are gain and loss. We gain something, we're happy, and loss. You know, brings the, the opposite. Praise and blame. Wow. That's a big one. Just praise me, don't blame me. (laughs) And that's playing out all the time, praise and blame. Pleasure and pain. Fame and disrepute. You know, one minute at work we're the hero, the next minute, They're wondering when our contract is up. (laughs) I had an interesting experience. For a couple months there, I was absolutely addicted to um, these, what do you call them? Placitas, is that them? They're um, Mexican popsicles. Is that what you call them? And uh, I just, every night I would eat like four or five of them. It was like I was addicted to them. And it get, brought me a lot of pleasure. <laughs> you know, short-lived, but, you know, sugar pleasure. It was so interesting. And then I started taking a diuretic, and for some reason it totally changed what I thought tasted good. It was a shocking thing. And I went for the, you know, the, the popsicles and oh my gosh, they just didn't taste the same. They just weren't pleasant anymore. And it was like, what happened? You know, all my um, not so guilty pleasure, because they were only like 30 calories each or something. So I thought I could eat these. But, you know, just to have them so quickly not be a source of such pleasure, it was like shocking to me. You know, one minute something is pleasurable, the next minute it changes and that experience is totally gone. Have you ever, I'm sure you could probably even think of your life, the things that you might have been addicted to for a little while and then all of a sudden you just didn't want it anymore. And then the same is probably true of the things that we would really avoid. 
you know, with mindfulness, you know, I'm really um, loving seeing my own crankiness and I love seeing my own defilements actually because it, you know, definitely points to a place where I need to do training. And, you know, when we see our own defilements with clarity, we don't need to do anything about it. We just need to see them. And then we see the defilements and then we see our wince or anger that we have it, right? That's the next thing to see. That's another manifestation of the defilement itself. And that's all we need to do is see it as clearly as we can. And wisdom takes care of it. We don't have to try to do anything because we can't really do it, right? It's the development of, you know, the positive qualities. And actually, when you think about it, Buddhism is all about happiness. The whole thing is about how not to suffer, how to be happy. You can look at the Four Noble Truths, the foundational, you know, the foundation of uh, the practice of satipatthana or mindfulness. The first noble truth is about happiness. It says that the opposite of happiness is central to the human condition and it's not personal. That's what the first noble truth is. The opposite of happiness is central to the human condition and it's not personal. The second noble truth from this perspective might sound something like the main barrier in the path to happiness is the suffering resulting from the craving and aversion mechanism. The craving and aversion mechanism which follows when the temporariness and inherent lack of satisfaction of, I don't know if I like this word, hedonism, (laughs) is not understood. When we don't understand the temporariness and inherent lack of satisfaction of popsicles. (laughs) When we think that our well-being is somewhere outside of us. Regarding that second noble truth, here is a, what Ajahn Suchito says about tanha or, or um, craving. Tanha, second noble truth. It's also what comes right after Um, Vedana, you know, Vedana, the second uh, foundation of mindfulness is knowing if something is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And right after that, right after we get that hit of uh, pleasure or unpleasant, tanha arises right after that, that we never, you know, we hardly ever see. But tanha arises to either go towards a thing if it's pleasant or to push away from it if it's unpleasant. So this is what Ajahn Suchito says about tanha. However, tanha meaning thirst is not a chosen kind of desire. People translate it as desire. It's a reflex. It's 
the desire to pull something in and feed on it, the desire that's never satisfied because it just shifts from one sense base to another, from one emotional need to the next, from one sense of achievement to another goal. It's the desire that comes from a black hole of need, however small and manageable that need is. The Buddha said that regardless of its specific topics, the thirst relates to three channels. Sense craving, craving to be something, to unite with an experience, and craving to be nothing or to disassociate from an experience. And that's it. You know, our response in life to pleasant or unpleasant dictates our life so much that we don't even realize it. So, Those are the first two uh, noble truths. And of course we know the third noble truth is that um, well-being, profound well-being is not dependent on external conditions. And then the fourth noble truth is this is what you need to do to be happy. This is how you can achieve your happiness. And I wanted, so my second talk (laughs) that I'm gonna start right now was about um, the paramis, the positive qualities. You know, that was maybe about purification there and I wanna talk about cultivation for a minute. Uh, And I love this idea that um, you know, if we commit to cultivating positive qualities, you know, one of the ways that we can interpret that is that we are not going to blame any external thing for what's going on with this heart-mind-body process. If we're taking radical responsibility for what's happening here. And I love that. A radical responsibility. And, you know, the Eightfold Path is the way that we do that. We take responsibility for how we're we're reacting when, you know, whatever thing happens in the hall might trigger us. Or, you know, I was telling one of the groups that I was on the plane over here and you know how we are. A lot of us who travel a lot, we get elevated to the goal status on our airline. We're so happy because we're going to get all the great benefits. And I was sitting in a row with, you know, the guy sitting next to me, the person sitting next to me, the uh, flight attendant came and gave that person a bar of chocolate. And it was like, hey man, I'm a goal member too. <laughs> and, you know, just the amount of thinking of what that did to me of not getting the chocolate. <laughs> It was ridiculous. And I'm sure I'm the only one who has really strong, um, inappropriate responses to the littlest things, right? (laughs) 
I think that that's happening a lot right now because um, I'm actually doing some research on resilience, on what are the factors that really promote resilience. And there's factors at the social level that promote resilience or take away from resilience and being able to recover. And competence is one of those. And uh, feeling like you're not safe in the social environment or that the social environment's not very well run. It can really impact our ability to feel strong and resilient. It's interesting. That's some of the things going on with me. I'm sure I'm the only one. But <laughs> so the second one is about how we cultivate the really positive qualities and... Um, there's this one teaching that really struck me. It's about developing the paramis and the three stages of developing the paramis. There's three stages of them. And I loved this idea. And I put a, a list of the paramis on the board so you could take a look. I'll just name them now because one of the, the first stage of developing par a parami or any positive quality is called the initial... Uh, 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 initiating phase of it. And the initiating phase is um, actually setting an intention that we are going to develop a parami. We are going to forego fun. We might be foregoing fun. We might be foregoing convenience or style or worldly performance or worldly success and actually, you know, devote our... Um, our time and our resources to um, developing positive qualities. And guess what? That's what every single one of you did by being here. You know, you forego, you let go of having other kinds of fun that you're probably much more used to, right? And you took the vow of silence and you would probably love to be sitting around talking to the people you're sitting next to. And you would love to go for a walk and just find out more about everybody because everybody here is so interesting. And it would be so much fun to have a conversation and engage, have a cup of coffee maybe. But, you know, we are engaging in the second stage of developing paramis or positive quality qualities and that's the gathering stage. And that is the stage of when you apply the quality or when you um, maintain that quality even in the face of your own opposition. So even when you want to um, goof off and not do sitting and walking, you know, if you say, no, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to... Um, develop a quality of um, patience, kanti, or of determination, of steadfastness, aditana, or of renunciation. You know, when you say, I'm going to do this instead, that's the gathering stage when you're watering the seeds of that and building that in your life. You're making that quality in in, in yourself stronger. And then there's the completion stage. And this is the stage when 
you know the fullness of that perfection is such that um, it'll take you through anything. It'll take you through any um, difficult thing that you're experiencing. Because that's what they say about the positive qualities, the paramis and the uh, Brahma Viharas. They're the rafts and the vehicles that get us through the floods of the suffering. You know, we rest in our patience and a prof- not, you know, a patience that, I don't know, maybe a worldly sense of patience, but a profound, strong sense of patience that it's a positive quality that we know is with us. And, you know, we can rest in that, in that patience of waiting for things to get better and um, determination, a sense of steadfastness. And they say that you know when the perfection is complete when there's no question about it that you would give your life for it. That if, you know, there's no way that you could not do it. It's so interesting. So the initiating phase of just knowing what the positive qualities are, the gathering stage of knowing when the opposite of that thing is happening, maybe some you know expression of greed, hatred, and delusion, knowing that that's happening in this moment, and making the determination, no, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, what's the pyramid associated with this? And I am going to make a commitment to manifest this right now. And we might need to say that to ourselves a thousand times. No greed. I'm going to be generous in this moment. No aversion. I am not going to, you know, act on this anger because there's a cup next to my cushion. And this is me talking. I've I've seen this in myself. Please, you know. I've seen how mad I get at little things. Or, you know, I'm not going to scream at the a flight attendant because she didn't give me a a bar of chocolate. (laughs) Hey, I'm a goal member. Where's my chocolate? (laughs) Or you know what I would do? In fact, I was thinking of how I was going to do this because I always, you know, my airline always sends you a um, a how was your flight thing, right? (laughs) I was like, what's that person's name right there? (laughs) I was thinking, Wow takes the littlest thing to water the seeds of anger and, you know, suffering causing. It would take not getting a chocolate bar to, to put some manure on the seed of anger and ill will. Wow, it takes so little to do that, right? But no, saying, yeah, I'm going to use this as fuel to uh, actually have virtue to manifest, um, you know, sila virtue and to be generous and you know not attributing that to certain things that I usually attribute to my age my gender my ethnicity right to let that go for the moment and to actually send them both hey I'm so happy for you you got some good chocolate you could do that you know we can switch it right there just make the intention 
to actually have mudita, have sympathetic joy. Wow, I love that chocolate. You're going to love that, right? (laughs) That's a way for me to share in the chocolate even when I didn't get to taste it. Isn't that interesting? So to initiating, to know what these positive qualities are, And when you see them, it's interesting because I think we all know what ones we might have even worked on in previous incarnations or for, you know, maybe genetically have certain of these qualities are stronger in us and others are weaker in us. And, um, you know, it's interesting to to do reflections on that. It would be a way of doing, you know, the first stage, the first of the three stages of of initiating. So I'm going to read what the paramis are right now, and you can think about whether you're strong on this or weak on this or neutral on this. Just think of this to yourself. Giving generosity. The second one is virtue or morality, sila. And that's like blameless conduct. And I'm going to say this. I always say it. I'm going to say it. You know what I'm going to (laughs) say? I know you know what I'm going to say. So, uh, you know, I met my partner on Match. And uh, (laughs) when I met him, it was so interesting because the thing that I thought... And I'm going to use this term, okay, I'm just going to say it. The sexiest thing about him was he had really excellent sila. <laughs> it was. It was like his ethics were really great. I, I know it was like I was like downloading music off the internet somewhere. He's going, wow, I mean, who's not getting paid when you do that? I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And just his ethic of, you know... Um, non-wastefulness it would you know i used to experience his non-wastefulness as like a lack of generosity or stinginess and um okay i'm going to tell you this too this is tmi but i'm going to tell you you know we'll go to the grocery store and go are you sure you're going to eat that before it you can't eat it and you know we already have a lot of food in the fridge so we really need more and i always thought wow he's a little bit stingy and then i went to the dentist and you know, all of us at certain ages, we go and have to have, you know, implants and things like that. And I was shocked that I had this multiple tens of thousands of dollars of dentist bill. And he drove me to the dentist one day, walked up to the counter and wrote one check for it and never mentioned it to me again. So was he stingy or was he just making sure that wastefulness wasn't happening? You know, I know it blew my mind. And that's what Sila looks like. That's what generosity looks like. And to me, you know, having been around someone who is that safe is really the most wonderful quality. And those of us who are still looking for partners and, you know, you don't necessarily need one for sure. But I think that's such a wonderful, beautiful quality. I guess I could say beautiful instead of sexy, but Sila's sexy, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see, you know, just how honest you are and 
you know, keeping the precepts would be one way. How well have you kept the precepts while you were here? And then renunciation, restraint. I couldn't not buy the popsicles, so I've got some issues with renunciation, I think. But actually, the more I see personally, I really am looking for the level of satisfaction of these external things that I think are going to bring satisfaction. And when we can see just how much they bring such limited satisfaction, wisdom lets go of clinging to all that stuff. We don't even have to do it, you know. And then wisdom panya is a parami. How strong is our panya? Energy virya, you know, balancing, striving with letting, you know, just not caring. How is our energy? Patience or endurance, kanti. Patience, I think, is one of my least well-developed paramis. That's why I actually like to give Dharma talks on patience because I'm trying to develop it. How strong is your patience with life? Patient endurance. Patience under assault. I think of Malala. Patience under assault, oh my gosh. Malala Yousafzai, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, she got shot in the head by people who didn't think girls should get educated. So she decided that that was the only thing she was going to do, was figure out how to help girls get educated. Endurance. Truthfulness, honesty. How are you on truthfulness and honesty? Determination, aditana. Kindness, metta. And equanimity, which our beloved Booker will talk about this evening. Equanimity considered to be one of the highest spiritual qualities. So may we all initiate and gather and complete the beautiful qualities. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.